Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. My name is Jessica Santone. In this CAA Conversations episode, we're talking about the pedagogical and social practices that we art historians study in our research and how these practices offer insights, models, or compelling questions for our teaching. I'm speaking today in conversation with Isabel Gallera and Noni Brinjolson. Can you introduce yourselves briefly? Hi. I'm an associate professor of art history at Susquehanna University in Pennsylvania. I uh, received my PhD in modern and contemporary art history and theory from the University of Pittsburgh. And my research is uh, at the intersection of global art, history, politics, and social justice. I also have curatorial experience as I've curated a number of exhibitions as an independent curator. Uh, mainly at university galleries. In a number of these exhibitions, I commissioned site-specific projects that often engage students, faculty, and members of local communities. Hi, everyone. I'm Noni Brinjolson, and I'm an assistant professor of art history at the University of Indianapolis, where I've been for the past three years after getting my PhD from UC San Diego. So my research focuses on collaborative public art projects, and examines themes of repair and construction in contemporary art. And I am an associate professor of art history and visual studies at Cal State East Bay. I've taught there since 2015. My current research investigates how artists use pedagogical projects related to science and climate in gardens, classrooms, and other public and semi-public spaces to expand how we come to know about climate and whose knowledge is included in vital discussions of environmental justice. Maybe we can start this conversation today by talking about our teaching. Isabel, how have research concerns about socially engaged practices shaped your teaching? So my research interests often guide and inspire my teaching. Most recently, uh, I've taught an upper-level art history class uh, titled Socially Engaged Art, and I've created this assignment that invites students to work um, in a three- or four-person groups to create and curate an exhibition using materials from online digitized collections. So one of my goals is to connect class material to contemporary events that students are familiar with or or have had direct experience with. So in this assignment, I provided students with links to a couple of archives, particularly the Black Lives Matter Memorial Fence artifact collection um, that was accumulated in 2020, the Black Liberation uh, 1969 archive on the history of the Black Students Liberation Movement at uh, Swarthmore, a small college in Pennsylvania, and the Freedom Archives, a collection of the Black Panther newspapers with covers created um, by former BP member and Minister of Culture, Emory Douglas. So as they select items from each of these archives, students are asked to identify a theme and at least five objects from at least two uh, different collections. They also have to think of creative uh, modes of display, of displaying the content of their exhibition and their exhibition space is our classroom. Um, and they have to accompany this exhibition by a curatorial statement and object labels. So in this assignment, students are 
invited to make connections across time between current contemporary protest movements in which um, students as participants feature prominently. So they reflect the ways, uh, for example, in which the DIY protest signs and other ephemeral protest artifacts become important tools in advancing the causes of um, the social movement. And once archived and digitized, their educational value continues to amplify the core goals as the ephemeral nature is memorialized through the archiving process. Working together, students also learn how to navigate the often complex dynamics of collaboratively authored projects. So for many in my class, this has been the first time that they investigate digitized archives and look for ways to situate their projects within the broader discourse of art activism and socially engaged art that they learn over the course of the semester. So that direct applicability is important for uh, my goal with this assignment. Uh, and most recently, students um, have shared with me their process of completing this project. For most groups, the first step was to familiarize themselves with the content of the archive, to identify dominant themes. Once they settled on a theme, uh, members of the group selected um, a few objects. The exhibitions uh, range from themes such as the legacy of Emory Douglas in contemporary social movements, uh, such as Black Lives Matter, Another theme was resisting police brutality then and now. And um, another theme, transforming the college classroom into an activist platform. It was really wonderful to hear students share how inspired they have been working on this project as they realize that they have the power to fight for social justice now. Isabel, this is so interesting to hear about because I teach a similar course and I can see some connections between themes and pedagogical methods that we use. Uh, so the course that I teach is called Introduction to Socially Engaged Art, and it's a blend of art history and applied practice. Um, I think that compared to your class, it's probably broader and more introductory level. Um, so it's always a mix of art and non-art majors. Uh, students learn about some of the history and theory associated with contemporary socially engaged art projects. And then they get the chance to create their own projects uh, in groups after engaging in volunteer service with a community organization. So we've worked with lots of different organizations. We've worked with local elementary schools, a couple of food banks, a senior center, an organization called the Burmese American, American Community Institute, a legal organization that focuses on immigrant rights and others. Um, so like the project you mentioned, it's very hands-on and it has been um, exciting, pretty inspiring for me to see students really take charge of their learning in this class. I think in a way that often doesn't happen or at least happens less in more lecture-driven courses that I teach. So I definitely feel like the guide on the side, I think in this course, just to use that pedagogical term, um, teaching it has also been a great way to connect with local community activism and social justice movements. So I appreciated your reference to the Black Lives Matter Memorial Fence and uh, the connections you discussed to the Black Liberation Archive, since we focus on a similar Indianapolis-based project in my class uh, that was created in 2020, which is called the Black Lives Matter Street Mural Project. And um, so we talk about connections to civil rights era activism 
in relation to that project. Uh, but I think there's something so powerful about getting students to connect with local histories and events and sites that really makes these issues feel more personal and more relatable to them. And I think that really motivates them to, uh, to want to learn more. And then on this note, I think another great resource for this specific course has been uh, this online redlining map produced through the University of Richmond's Digital Scholarship Lab which is such a great learning tool because you can look at specific neighborhoods and see histories of redlining neighborhood by neighborhood. Um, it was pretty eye-opening uh, for a lot of my students. We actually just looked at it uh, in class yesterday <laughs> and um, it has be become this great resource that I use like every semester uh, with them um, for looking at it like in relation to some of the projects that they're working on, the different community organizations that are trying to address, you know, the history of this practice and how it continues to affect uh, space today. Um, so Jessica, how have you considered some of these same themes and questions in the courses that you teach? I've got a somewhat similar advanced topics course on pedagogical art and social practice. When I taught this a few years ago, I asked students to work in groups to teach the reading each week in a creative way. This is a really common uh, seminar assignment, right? But I've got a 30 person seminar. <laughs> so this is a group activity and the majority of my students are um, art and design students rather than art history students. So, uh, getting them to think creatively and engage creatively in this project is really um, important. In spring 2020, um, during the pandemic, as the course shifted fully online, I was totally delighted by all of the things that students did to try to engage with their classmates at a distance. Um, whether that was through creating short games or making digital collages that fostered community connection and helped us connect with the required materials. So they had to not just teach the reading, but teach it in a way that reflected something about the critical pedagogies um, that we were thinking about in that reading. Uh, and it was, it was really helpful to, to see them think and apply at the same time. In other courses I teach, I'm eager to see how the lessons from pedagogical art can be applied to learning together in art history classes. This is something I've been thinking about for a long time. One of my large lecture classes that has as a theme art and publics um, and a focus on art after 1989 starts off with an asset mapping task that's modeled after a project by Maureen Connor and Susan Jehoda. Um, students are asked to share what skills or strengths they bring to our art history course and what they hope other students will help them with. Um, I've done this task in a few different ways, but most recently by coding the results to develop good discussion groups. Um, some students are good at note-taking, others are good at instigating conversations, and getting them to share that about themselves helps to build community and create a space for um, better learning. A similar tactic I tried a few years ago in a smaller class was a riff on Lawrence and Anna Halperin's RSVP cycles um, from 1970. In my class, discussion groups had to reflect on their combined resources, that's the R, um, before coming up with a scored plan, that's S, 
for performing that action. That's the P. And then reflecting again through what Halpern called value acting, um, which encourages a kind of iteration to improve the performance and turns the whole thing into a cycle. So I thought this was a really good way to teach students how to work together. So often um, we are in institutional contexts. I, I mean, I was just um, last week in a meeting uh, assessing how good our institution is at teaching students how to collaborate. Um, but we don't always actually teach them how to do it. We just require it as a component of the courses that they take using the RSVP cycles to try to get students to really think about how are we actually learning how to interact with each other. That was really beneficial. Yeah, Jessica, I think this is such an important point and I appreciate learning about that specific reference and this particular technique uh, that you've used in your class because I think it's something that I have also thought a lot about in relation to uh, group projects in my class. Um, so I think that this term scaffolding uh, that we're probably all familiar with has become pretty common in relation to essay and research related assignments, but we don't often see it used in relation to group projects and uh, forms of collaboration in the classroom. And I think that can be a problem since students are learning how to work with others in college in the same way that they're learning to do other things like write and do research and speak in public. Um, so I try to build that into this particular class quite a bit. Uh, I try to get somewhere in the zone um, in between like giving them full independence and kind of holding their hands throughout the project. I think what really helps is that we're looking at collaborative art projects in this class and talking so much about things like shared labor, building solidarity, creating forms of empathy. So they have these ideas to emulate in their own work and these examples to, uh, to turn to and draw from. Something else that has come out of these projects is thinking about evaluation when it comes to socially engaged art practices. Um, and it's something that I think about quite a bit. Uh, I am a member of Field, which is a journal that focuses on socially engaged art criticism. And so it's something that uh, myself and other members of the journal have thought quite a bit about since we got started. Uh, how do you evaluate this type of work that is so different from more conventional forms of art? So one of the models that I have found to be very useful comes from the artist and writer Suzanne Lacey. And this is something that I share with my students in my Introduction to Socially Engaged Art course to help them think about their own projects and how to evaluate them um, even before they actually create them. So Lacey has a section on evaluation in her book called Mapping the Terrain. And she shows this diagram, which consists of these concentric circles uh, that are meant to illustrate the audience for new genre public art. So she talks about how at the very center is origination. Moving outwards, you see these different levels of engagement. So collaboration, performance, audience, media audience, and then the audience of myth and memory. So it's something that I encourage my students to look at when they're actually designing their own projects. And when they're thinking about the kinds of audience and participation that they're interested in building into these projects. 
So a lot of them uh, create projects that engage the local campus community uh, since it's what they're most familiar with. Uh, one example is from this group that um, did this really unique project where they uh, organized a walkathon event, which was at a neighborhood senior center. Uh, this was during the pandemic. So it was intended to build community, allow people to socialize safely outdoors during a very isolating time. Uh, so just going back to the diagram, it's something that I encourage students to look at when they are uh, creating their own projects, when they're looking at different projects by artists. And then I actually get them to design their own rubrics too. So I think it's a way to encourage investment in these projects and then also um, kind of help them think about the different component parts as they're trying to uh, think about, you know, what the end project is actually going to look like. Uh, we also look at some examples of uh, how different uh, writers, how different critics uh, have thought about evaluating socially engaged art. So I share some specific examples, including this essay by Deborah Fisher from A Blade of Grass, uh, who she wrote this essay titled The Imagination and Beyond Toward a Method of Evaluating Socially Engaged Art. Uh, and it has been really helpful in talking about this kind of art more broadly, I think, as well as their own projects. Uh, so what are some of the challenges that you both find in evaluating collaborative projects? I, I really love that you brought up Suzanne Lacey's concentric circles. That's something that we also look at in my classes and think about uh, engagement with the audience, because it's so important when you're doing this kind of um, public or pedagogical work. Um, the question of evaluation is a really complicated one, especially when we bring that into um, discussions with our institutional contexts. If we mean evaluation in terms of assessment for grading, like I think I'm in favor of metacognition or a reflection essay that asks the student to describe what happened and what was learned. When we come to these modes of assessment that might move into alignment with um, rubrics at the neoliberal university as ways of codifying practices that could become overly prescriptive or used to determine future budget allocations or performance standards, et cetera. Um, I, think it's, I think it's really tricky. Um, of course, my answer would be different if we're talking about evaluation in the sense of how do we analyze art projects as part of our research or teaching in art history. This makes me think about uh, what what we were talking about just yesterday in one of my classes though, regarding artist Jen Ray's work on her, um, her collaboration with a number of other artists in, um, at Arts House Melbourne uh, on a project called Refuge. This was a multi-year series of social and pedagogical workshops, performances and other activities, all oriented to disaster preparedness. And Ray described this whole project as being an anti-model. She and other organizers were insistent on developing and sharing a methodology, one that centers indigenous knowledges and knowledge keepers, one that uses strategies of deep listening and play to generate more creative approaches, 
one that brings the risk-taking capacities of art into transdisciplinary conversation with risk-averse institutions or groups like emergency medical services. But the refuge organizers did not and do not want what they did to simply be copied or modeled after, because in, in their view, this wouldn't be faithful to the unique work of relationship building that is at the core of so much pedagogical and social work, especially from a perspective that centers indigenous and first nations knowledges. So thinking about this in relation to my own teaching, I want the plans that I have for collaboration and, and engagement to be rooted in um, consistent methodologies or epistemologies that I've spent years thinking about and developing, but without just repeating each time I teach the class the same assignment. Um, in my art and publics class, each time I've taught that, um, the students have curated exhibitions. But because I've worked with the students to help shape what that exhibition should look like, what they're interested in, how the exhibition should work, the details of how I assess the assignment, how the assignment is structured, the way the whole project works end up being um, really varied each time we do it. A couple of years ago, the students curated um, art projects that had been left behind. This was during the pandemic um, or shortly after we were kind of like just returning from um, being remote. And there were a lot of like abandoned artworks left behind. So in a display case in the art building, students gathered together some of these things and they created these really playful and fun um, ways of getting, like games mostly, ways of getting the students who passed by to try to engage with this work that had been ignored. Right now though, that same class is um, working on collecting student work about mental health. Their idea this time was to install that uh, exhibition in multiple high traffic spaces. So as a kind of dis dispersed exhibition close to student uh, life and student classrooms, um, they're responding to the stress and anxiety in a really busy, crazy semester as we head towards finals week. It's really exciting to see students responding with so much sensitivity to the changes in circumstances and their own relationships to each other and to their campus community between these two iterations. Isabel, I want to bring you back into the conversation. How have you thought about specific artist practices as they influence your pedagogy and assignment design too? Yeah, so going back to um, the particular assignment that I mentioned earlier, um, that was inspired by my visit to the Pratt Library in downtown Baltimore in August of 2023 of this year, where I encountered in the downstairs hallway the exhibition The Art and the Preservation of Resistance, the Black Lives Matter Memorial Fence Collection. And... Um, it, it really imagine being a hallway filled with posters, banners, clothing, photographs, um, glass cases that um, enclosed ephemeral objects from the protest. 
And all these have been originally attached to the memorial fence and accumulated uh, during the pandemic between 20, June 2020 and uh, approximately end of January 2021. And it's interesting that former uh, BLM protesters, um, specifically Nadine Saylor and Karen Arwen, on Christmas Day, um, christened the memorial fence, the BML, BLM memorial fence, with uh, the gesture of putting a banner um, with, with this name at the top of the fence. And they were really um, careful and interested in saving the posters from destructions um, and uh, with the assistance of a number of local organizations and a librarian, Eliza Leventhal, they collected the posters in boxes, uh, took them there uh, in their homes, um, and uh, they preserved them before they were uh, totally removed at the end of January of 2021. And what's very um, amazing here that 1,600 of these posters were actually digitized and archived um, as historically significant protest art. And this was a joint um, collaboration um, between the Pratt Library in Baltimore, DC Public Libraries, the Library of Congress, and Howard um, University. So what you saw in the hallway at Pratt Library uh, during that exhibition were actually copies of the original posters and artifacts. They weren't the, the actual original ones um, since they were too fragile. So uh, why I'm bringing this up in, in such detail is because it connects very closely to my current research interest in um, investigating this renewed interest in art activism. And a number of scholars have published um, books in uh, visiting um, what activist art is, uh, its history, um, what the art of activism might consist of, the activism of art. Artivism is another term put forward in the last 10 to 15 years. So it is really undeniable that the art activism today is a manifestation of activism surrounding social movements in the last 15 years. Uh, think of Occupy, think of Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, decolonize this place, the Me Too movement, as well as a number of climate change and racial justice protests. So um, it's sort of organically, I'm thinking of projects in my classes that relate to my research interest. And in particular, I'm interested in investigating forms of care as protest actions. Um, for example, uh, art historians um, such as Namusa Magbuku interprets disobedience as care work in line with other forms of solidarity, resource sharing, collaborative, benevolent social practice. Also, Laura Rajkovic um, understand protest uh, as an act of radical care. And I would say it is scared that saved the artifacts on the BLM fence in Washington, D.C. in 2020. Um, even during my walkthrough with a librarian at Pratt um, in early August, uh, she shared with me how Nadine and Karen spent their night uh, as they weathered the cold temperature at the fence to protect its content. And amazingly, uh, it is a sense of care, uh, genuine care that ignited in the students' um, minds and hearts um, engaging in this assignment that allows them a close look at these archives, uh, both current and uh, historical.
So Noni, what has been your experience in uh, connecting socially engaged art practices that you research, for example, um, and the design and conceptualization of your um, class assignments? We look at a wide range of examples in my course to give students ideas for their own projects. And it's always really interesting to me to see what resonates most with them. So Project Row Houses in Houston is one example that a lot of them have connected with over the years. Uh, a lot of them write about it in their project narrative and reference aspects of it when they're designing their projects. And I think they're often impressed by its scale and its longevity, the fact that it has had such an impact on the third ward. Um, and so I feel like by showing them these examples, uh, part of what I'm trying to do is also just to challenge some of their assumptions and preconceived notions around art making. So I'm in an art department that is very foundations-based with a strong emphasis on developing skills and craftwork abilities. And I definitely value that in art. I think a solid foundation is important, but I also wanna make sure that they have a strong understanding of contemporary art that comes out of a more conceptual model as well. And I think this can often be really hard for them to grasp, like when something doesn't look like traditional art, uh, for example. So in my socially engaged art course, it's really important to break down some of the projects into their component parts and to spend time talking in groups about what these projects actually involve, how they're made, to try to demystify the process a little bit and figure out uh, what they could actually try to do themselves on a smaller scale. Some of these things are really neat and really inspiring to see take shape. So last year in this course, for some reason, everyone wanted to make a zine. Zines really seemed to be in the air. Uh, and a lot of their zines focused on gender politics and uh, transgender rights. Uh, this was because of discussions that were going on nationally and then also specifically in response to an Indiana anti-transgender rights bill that was being passed last spring. So I think it's really neat to see these things being discussed in the classroom in relation to art and specific practices and theories, but then to also give them these techniques and strategies for organizing and movement building that they can take out of the classroom with them too. I think that's a really powerful thing. And then another example that I wanted to highlight, just thinking about different artistic practices, uh, is post-commodity, which uh, is an indigenous art collective, a group that I talked about uh, during the CAA conference panel that this conversation initially came out of. Uh, so they've made a lot of site-specific works, and they have talked about their work's potential to generate what they refer to as new frameworks for learning, which I think relates back to uh, what Jessica was talking about with the anti-model idea used by Jen Ray. Uh, but something that I got really interested in, just this idea of creating new models, new frameworks, uh, and you know how these works by post-commodity invite us to learn about and relate to the world differently compared to many other uh, traditional artworks that you would encounter in, uh, say, a Western art museum, for example. So a lot of their works, post-commodity, emphasize listening, dialogue, uh, collaboration. 
They are very interested in critiquing the values associated with Western culture and Western art institutions. Uh, but then I think these critiques apply equally to the neoliberal classroom and the models of learning that we're used to seeing in these spaces. So then this idea of new frameworks for learning is very appealing to me for those particular reasons. And for me, uh, thinking about uh, pedagogy in this way, I think it invites uh, thinking about models of learning that prioritize discussion and dialogue over you know, the more uh, transmission-based model, collaboration over the idea of individual mastery, and things like uh, doing, you know, getting hands-on experience, practice uh, over uh, something like passive reception, among other things. That's really great, Nani. Like you, I'm also taking my cues for pedagogical strategies from artists who've done a lot of work on and thinking about critical pedagogies. I'm really envious, actually, of the ways that artists like Jen Ray and others I've been studying recently, such as Jackie Sumel with her Growing Abolition Project, or Black Quantum Futurism, and their Community Futures Lab project get to work outside of educational institutions where ways of learning and knowing don't depend on the outcome-driven models of neoliberal education. Still, within my own teaching, I try to find spaces where moments of freedom can happen. And I agree that centering doing and practice is an important component of developing frameworks for learning that are more open flexible, and hopefully for our students also fun. It's been good talking with both of you about the really exciting scholarship that's developing on pedagogical art and how it might influence our teaching practices. I know I'm looking forward to continued conversations about pedagogical practices in contemporary art. Well, in fact, uh, Noni, you and I are, are serving as co-editors for a book titled uh, Pedagogical Art in Activist and Curatorial Practices that will be published by uh, Rutledge as part of their Advances in Art and Visual Studies series. And we are expecting um, the book to be published in uh, late 2024 or early 2025. Um, and a bit about the book, um, it's looking at pedagogical approaches that um, have been adopted by a number of contemporary practitioners operating at the intersection of art, art history, education, and activism. Yeah, so the book is meant to be a resource for scholars, students, practitioners. Uh, so it highlights the historical, philosophical, and theoretical legacy of pedagogical art in contemporary forms of art activism and institutional practices. And uh, it brings together leading and emerging scholars, curators, artists of newly commissioned essays on case studies from various geographical, cultural, and political contexts. And Jessica is one of the contributors to the book. So Jessica, would you like to discuss your essay that will be included? Sure, thanks, Noni. Um, I've collaborated with artist Jen Ray on an essay that will discuss her work Portage that she did at Arts House in Melbourne. Uh, Jen and I argue that this project centered indigenous pedagogies and a commitment to relationality um, as ways of creating a more just and sustainable future. We were both really interested in how climate justice and intergenerational justice might be supported by 
collaborative and intimate forms of learning and knowing. Isabel, Nani, myself, we all hope that those of you who are listening will have a chance to check out this book in about a year. Um, thank you, Isabel. Thank you, Noni. And thank you, everyone. Have a great day. Okay.